If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. So what we'll do, just to let you know, so that you don't think that I'm skipping over a lot of important stuff in the text, is I'm going to focus really on one specific theme or one specific area within verses 1 through 21. And Austin's going to come back behind me next week and he's going to start to kind of extract some of these other things. So if we peruse the whole text and you're like, but there's so many great things in there that you haven't dealt with, Austin's going to come back and deal with those. So we're going to kind of really localize or centralize our focus today. So last week, I think it was last week, I was having a conversation with Marley and Wesley and Calvin. We were upstairs in the, in the bedroom at the end of the day, and I'm, having, I'm talking to them about my sermons. I know they're very interested. And I was like, you know, this and this. And I said, you know, sometimes I kind of preach hard things. I say heavy things. And so I'll throw a joke in here or there. Whether it's funny or not is not the point. The point is I try to tell a joke or say something goofy or funny. And I said, uh, I said to Marley, I said, I call it breaking the heavy. I said, because sometimes I just say heavy stuff, and I've got to kind of break that a little bit because it's just so much on people sometimes. And she goes, you call it breaking the heavy. I call it breaking the boring. So uh, that's, uh, that's how my, wife, my, my daughter feels about it, right? And I said, you're not even here to listen to my sermons, Marley. So, uh, and then I spanked her, and she went to bed. Uh, so I didn't. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Those of you listening on the Internet, I didn't spank my child that time. So... Um, Breaking the boring, and she just thought it was the funniest thing that she had ever said to me. I call it breaking the boring, ah, and she's laughing, and it's a, it's a fun time. So um, having said that, hopefully today I will break the boring if there's any of that. Uh, Travis has let me know, so I need you all to help me. Travis worked through the night last night, but he is here today when normally he would be sleeping, and uh, so he's going to try to try to hang with me. So if anybody sees him nodding off, Leslie, feel free to reach around and grab his beard, you know, or Austin or Stephen, throw something across here, whatever, you know, uh, just to keep Travis awake. Maybe we'll get everybody to stand up, and if he's sleeping, he'll still be sitting down, so it'll embarrass him. So we'll figure out some stuff to do. So Travis, I'm just helping you out, all right, because you asked me. You said you notified me. You said, hey, just kind of I'm going to do my best. I said, so now you have the church body. You know, it takes a village to keep you awake. So we're going to do that. You know, uh, hopefully, hopefully this will be compelling enough to keep you alert and, and ready. So, so here we are. So John chapter 10. But by way of introduction, what I want to share with you is a little story that I, that I happened upon from 2005 in Turkey. Okay, so this is kind of a, an interesting thing because when you walk through the text that we're going to be looking at today, there's a lot of sheep language, shepherd language. You run into two of Christ's I am statements where he says, I am the door, and then he says, I am the good shepherd. We're going to focus on the good shepherd, and Austin's going to kind of unpack more of what it means for Christ to be the door. But we're going to focus on I am the shepherd. And I was studying about sheep, reading things, because you can't deny the language throughout the entire Bible. You know, not that... Not that it's this derogatory, ugly thing that we're referenced you know, to as sheep, but keep in mind that sheep need a shepherd. Sheep are wandering animals. Sheep are defenseless animals by large degree, so you have to keep that in mind. But there is a theme of shepherding and sheep language throughout the entire Bible. David was a shepherd. There's a lot of talk there. It's, uh, it's thousands and thousands of years old. You know, shepherding is, a, is, is commonplace throughout history. And so I think it's worth kind of saying a few things about sheep to get ourselves in the right context, in the right frame of mind. But listen to this story. This is a real news story that aptly tells us the first reason sheep need a shepherd, because they are prone to wander. Hundreds of sheep, the news article says, followed their leader, not, not the shepherd, but followed one sheep. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looking on in dismay. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's kind of funny to me. 400 sheep fell 15 meters, that's almost 50 feet, fell 15 meters to their deaths in a ravine in Van province near Iran, but broke the fall of another 1,100 sheep that came plummeting over the edge. Shepherds from a nearby village neglected the flock while eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. The loss to local farmers was estimated at $74,000. One sheep led 1,499 sheep to plummet over a cliff. Thankfully, the sheep that died 
provided sort of a pillow of sorts for the others to kind of bounce off of. But that's the story. And this is commonplace for sheep because sheep are wandering animals. We might say because we've heard sheep are extremely dumb, extremely stupid, but that's not really the case. They're actually not that dumb of an animal. Shepherding was a, uh, sheep are fairly intelligent. They have problem-solving abilities, as a matter of fact. Sheep are considerably gregarious. They like to be in groups. Maybe that's one, their only defense mechanism. They don't have teeth, you know, to, to you know, like, a, like, like, like other animals, big sharp teeth that they can show their teeth through a growl and scare people away as a posturing type of defense. They group together. They form more of a buffet, hoping that they won't be the ones that are picked off they build friendships, they stick up for one another, they feel sadness, they have an increase in, in stressful situations, they have an increase in cortisol, which is, which is like this stress hormone, and it kind of elevates, and they go berserk, they go nuts in stressful situations. So sheep are in interesting animals, very interesting, and shepherding was a prevalent occupation throughout the scriptures, particularly in Jesus' day. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that Jesus uses this language to help us understand more the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. Because we are called sheep all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible. Isaiah even says, hey, we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We've each turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then you get all the way, you fast forward to the New Testament language, where we are likened unto sheep again and again and again. And so you might start to see the correlation between us and sheep. And the shepherd of the, uh, the occupation, the shepherd and who Jesus is to us as his sheep. So I think it's worth mentioning, worth kind of diving into this a little bit since God saw fit to put shepherding and sheep in this kind of language. Whether it's anthropomorphic language, whether he's speaking of sheep as it relates to us, or whether he's just talking about the occupation of sheep as it was throughout the centuries. So here's my objective, to understand more fully the goodness of the good shepherd, simple. To understand more fully the goodness of the good shepherd. So John chapter 10, you can read with me as we begin. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheep fold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, for they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them, and this has kind of been the way it's been for a while now. Jesus is doing a miracle, or Jesus is making this teaching, making statements, and they're not getting it. Of course, natural mindset on natural things. So, And by the way, the audience here are Pharisees and disciples. It's a, it's a mixture of people. So Jesus again said to them, he speaks more plainly here, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who, come to, all who come before me or came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. By the way, there have been many who professed to be the door, by the way. And Jesus is saying here, before his time, before his time there were many that claimed to be that door. But there are many even today that we look at and we can see David Koresh, Jim Jones. You know, there's all these people that have claimed to either be the Christ or to be the way to be the door. And this is commonplace. It was commonplace before Jesus' day, and it was commonplace since Jesus' day. And he warns us of this. He tells us of this reality. Jesus says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. 
So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words, many of them saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Going back to what we just saw Jesus accomplish in our study last week. So let's pray and we'll dive right in. Father, I pray this morning that you give us eyes to see your goodness that you give us eyes to see the goodness of your son specifically. Eyes to see that he is a good shepherd. Eyes to see that his care and his concern for us is critical for our hope, for our endurance. Lord, help us to see more fully the goodness of Jesus as the good shepherd. Help us to connect with this text in a very specific and a very special way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a few things I just want to show you in this text regarding the Good Shepherd, keeping in mind that I want you to see more fully the goodness of the Good Shepherd. I want you to walk away from your understanding, not just generally speaking. We want to move past generalities. We want to get into specifics. We want to start to understand more of why he is good. Because anybody walks away from here saying that. Oh, he's good. Songs are written. He's a good, good father. Jesus is great. God is great. God is good. Let us sing for our food. We say these things. We've grown up knowing these things. But it's time that we just kind of stop for a second and consider what makes him so good. What are some of the outworkings specifically in John chapter 10? And I'm also going to bring in Psalm 23 because it's significant. Why are these things so, so critical for us to understand? So there's a few things I just want to highlight. There's so many more things in this. As a matter of fact, I deleted about four or five of them for your sake, right? So, so we have a few of these I want to go through just to show you why he is so good. So I am the good shepherd, which he said several times in this text. First thing is this. Very simply, the shepherd knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. And you and I might be quick to peruse past that. And say, okay, yeah, he knows, he knows, he knows. But I want you to really stop for just a moment. This won't take long to cover this. And just consider the way in which the shepherd knows the sheep. And the way that we see that is we just look at the occupation of shepherding throughout history. Shepherds knew their sheep very, very well. They knew their eating habits. They knew which one was more sickly or which one is prone to more illness. They knew the constant threats that were around the shepherds or around the sheep. As a matter of fact, when the psalmist writes, the Lord takes us as a shepherd by green pastures and by still waters, this was a safety issue. This was a safety issue. When water was moving more quickly, it was more dangerous to the sheep. It was more dangerous because the current could take them away. It was also more dangerous because the louder the water is, the less the shepherd could hear if there's any dangers that might be surrounding the flock. So there's a tremendous care and a tremendous concern when it comes to the shepherd and his sheep. So the good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows their eating habits, sleeping patterns, the threats that are around them, injuries, illnesses, etc. And this is what Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And so what our responsibility is, is to come to this text and say, okay, we understand that a shepherd knows his sheep, but your job is to look at it and say, okay, I'm the sheep here. How is this speaking to me? What does this say about me? This is how you read your Bible, especially when Jesus speaks in this language that to us is so very clearly referencing us. We say that he knows the sheep and the sheep know him, but let's focus on the fact that he knows his sheep. It doesn't just mean that he has this awareness of us. Is that not such an obvious statement? If God is omniscient and he knows all things and Jesus is the same at this point, is it not, is it not clear, is it not just obvious that, okay, yeah, he would know everybody. He would know everybody that comes. I know everybody that's in my family, my immediate family. I know everybody that's there. 
Do I have to explain that to you? No, that's a given. It's a given that Jesus knows who his sheep are. So it's not just this awareness of who they are, not just a, a consciousness of their existence or that they belong to the flock. He intimately knows all their needs, all their wants, all their proclivities, all their fears, their anxieties. And this should come as such a tremendous hope to you and to me because we have our proclivities. We have our natural bent towards things that aren't good for us. We have our weaknesses, our ailments, our struggles, our anxieties, our sufferings. We have all these things. And I don't know about you, but something that I have always found so very comforting, especially with my bout with anxiety, is someone knowing the struggle or someone knowing that I have this, someone knowing where my natural proclivities are, where my tendencies are, is such a comfort to me. But on an infinite scale, that you would go through your suffering, that you would go through your hardships, whether it's in marriage or whether it's in your work or whether it's on in, your, in your own mind, whether it's your form of suffering, that God would know intimately all your struggles, all your fears. And the fact that we can take from all over the scripture and show that he doesn't just know, but he's concerned for those things. He's concerned for your well-being. He's concerned for your best interest, and he's always looking out for them. So that should take us to this place that we say, you know what, I have this fear, I have this concern, I have this problem, but the Lord's not meeting the need like I think he should. Then the answer to that is, then it's not what you think you need. I think I need this, I want this, I want this, and if it's not happening, then it's not what you need at the moment. Because God is doing what you need at the moment. Now the moment might be, you need to wait, you need to trust, you need to keep pursuing, you need to endure, you need to persevere, that might be it. And later you might find healing, or later you might find clarity, or lady, 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 later you might find a calm in the midst of the anxiety. So it's a good thing that he's the good shepherd and he knows his sheep. He knows the sheep, and this is how he connects it. He says, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So he goes to further explain this knowing, this understanding, this, this, this intimate knowledge of, this concern for, because he compares the way that he knows his sheep, he compares it to the way he knows the Father, and the Father knows him. There can't be a greater understanding of one another. There can't be a greater knowing of one another than the way Jesus knows the Father and the Father knows Jesus. You and I don't know Jesus that way. You and I don't know the Father that way. But Jesus knows us that way. And that should come as a great comfort. It is to me, as I think about all my struggles, all my ailments, all my problems, I'm like, but God knows. He's not just aware. He's not just aware. It's not this, he's, he's removed himself and he, he's, he's cognizant of or he has this consciousness of He's intimately affiliated with my struggles, with my hurts, and he concerns himself with those things, but he responds in a way that is best always. He's a shepherd that knows his sheep is what he tells us. But not only that, he's a shepherd that feeds his sheep. Now, some of these I want to pull from other texts because I found them to be relevant. Obviously, they're still true, whether we get it from here or somewhere else. But you don't have to turn there with me, and Lysandra, don't worry about trying to keep up with me, but... In John chapter 21, there's a very interesting event that takes place. We understand that Peter did what? He denied Christ. Big no-no, right? He denied Christ, but then later, Jesus comes back to Peter, and they have this conversation. They're gathered around this fire again. When the last time you had Jesus and Peter and a fire in the same vicinity, you had Peter denying Christ. And I'm not saying there's something special or significant about the fire, but that's just what I see. So they gather together, and what happens? In this text, you have what the, you know, what, what people who produce the Bible, um, at least the translations, they call it the reinstatement of Peter. You've probably heard it said that way. So let me just read this to you, and listen to the language. Remember, Jesus feeds his sheep. Listen to this language. He's speaking to Peter, and he says... So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now there's a lot in here to unpack that I'm not preaching this sermon today. Who are these? What do you mean by that? And the different usage, because when he goes through, do you love me? He uses the different forms of the word. He uses agape, phileo, eros. He uses these different words that kind of have different connotations. It's, very fan, it's, it's a very fantastic text, but for the sake of time and for the direction of this and my objective, listen to this. He says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed 
my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Can you imagine how Peter's feeling right now? And I'm not trying to put words into the scripture that aren't there, but it's an interesting thing to think on because Peter has denied Jesus. I mean, Peter has done this horrible thing. Right? Now, we deny Jesus in ways all the time. You know, but, but Jesus did this just as, I mean, but, God, but Peter did this just as Jesus said he would. And now he's standing face to face with the same Christ that he denied before Jesus was scourged and crucified. And Jesus is saying, Are you, do you love me? Yes, yes, I do. I do love you. I don't know. If it was me, I'd be sitting here saying, I know I'm saying I love you and I feel that I love you, but I know my actions have not said that at all. And Peter gets frustrated. Jesus, you know my thoughts. You know my heart. You know that I love you. I believe here Peter does really love Jesus. And he says to him, Simon, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Do you love me? You know everything. How do you ask that? And Jesus said said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you wherever you want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So a good shepherd feeds his sheep. This is what Jesus instructs Peter to do. And Peter plays a significant role with the church. We understand that Jesus has this exchange with Peter at another point. He says, Peter, your name will be called Petros. Your name will be called the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's a dangerous route to go with that, and it's the route of Catholicism, which I am not going. So I'm not deifying Peter in any way. I'm not saying that Peter was something that he wasn't. But there was something special and significant about this exchange between Peter and Jesus here and when he says to him on this rock I will build my church and I will give the keys to the kingdom and the gates of Hades will not prevail against you we know that Jesus intends on feeding his sheep but with what with his word with the word of God it's just simple there's no other way to understand this text Jesus has taught his disciples and now he's saying to Peter these things that I've taught you just like the Great Commission just like Matthew 28 he's saying you need to go and you need to continue to give people the words of life God has preserved his word for that purpose do you know how many numerous transmissions the scriptures have gone through do you know that scribes and monks would take a copy of the scriptures originating with the original right from the original authors, and they would write. And that was what their life was spent doing. Some of the scribes would write and write and write, just as a note, I've mentioned it before, I'll mention it again, and they get to the word Yahweh, and they would discard the writing instrument that they were using, pick up a new writing instrument to write the name Yahweh. And then they would discard that instrument, never to be used again, because the name Yahweh was too pure to use a used writing instrument for that word. They had a healthy respect for the name of God. The scribes and the monks would transmit the text over and over and over. The monks were so serious about this in preserving the word of God. And I would say, moreover, God is so serious about preserving the word that a monk would transmit every word, every character, every phrase, and at the end they would count every single character. There are 31,000 plus verses in the Bible. Can you imagine? There's over 700,000 words in the Bible. I can't tell you how many letters are in the Bible, and they would count each letter to make sure that it was exactly the same. All in the name of preserving the sacred text. It survived transmissions. It has survived textual criticism, which the definition of that is the science of establishing the actual text the author wrote so far as it is possible. To date, we have 5,686 completed New Testament manuscripts. Now, when you piece them all together, we have over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 
66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,240 verses, 783,137 words in the Bible, 40 authors. And the accuracy rate from transmission to transmission to date is 99.5%. That's incredible. That's more than, that, that has a has substantially higher accuracy than the Iliad and the Odyssey and other historic works. Why? Because God is preserving his word. Why? Because man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And ultimately because Jesus says, feed my sheep. Because that's what the good shepherd does. Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. The good shepherd feeds his sheep. Because the word of God is critical for your spiritual vitality, God has made sure to preserve his word over thousands and thousands of years. So a good shepherd feeds his sheep, but also a good shepherd leads his sheep. He knows his sheep, he feeds his sheep, and he leads his sheep. Very basic outline, very easy to follow. I want to bring Psalm 23 into this for good reason, too. When you read Psalm 23, you understand it. You hear it at a lot of, you hear it at a lot of funerals. I've used this and preached through this at a lot of funerals, graveside-type stuff. And it's fascinating. I mean, you know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They do what? They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. This is a very common psalm that we all know very, very well. Maybe Psalm 51, maybe, you know, Psalm, psalm 51, Psalm 150, and Psalm 23 are those that really stand out to us. You got one that's saying, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be, in the, be the glory. You got Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of repentance, which really stands out to us. And then you've got this one, which you probably know more than the other two. And maybe you know it more than any of the other texts in the book of Psalms. But I want to bring it in because it's significant, because Jesus is calling himself numerous times the good shepherd. But he doesn't just say the good shepherd, but he offers a, 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 a statement before that. The phrase is, I am the good shepherd. Ego I me, I am the good shepherd. When he says I am, he's using the same verbiage as the God of the Old Testament when he said to Moses, you want to know who to tell Pharaoh sent you? I am that I am. And Jesus is using the same language. He's taking what God, what Jehovah used, what Yahweh used, as a designation, as a title for himself, and Jesus is claiming that same title designation. But not just that. He's also claiming to be the good shepherd when it was Jehovah. In Psalm 23, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is making a very clear claim to deity here. And we've told you already that John's gospel is an apologetic for the deity of Christ. And here it creeps in again. Don't, don't miss it. It's critical. That's why I wanted to bring this in. The good shepherd leads his sheep. You know what he doesn't do? Let me tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't just send you out to fend for yourself. Don't get me wrong. There's testing times. There are times where you do go out and you're in the crucible. You're in suffering. And you're like, God, what am I doing here? What's going on? And he's taking you through a season of waiting, of trust, right? But he's already shown you what to do. He's already given you what you need so that you can apply it in these seasons and situations. This is important to understand. You have to understand the helplessness and the defenselessness of the sheep. For a sheep to be sent out to fend for himself, what ends up happening is 1,500 sheep go over a cliff because they're wandering creatures. It would be like sending a child to the Alaskan wilderness with a diaper and a sippy cup and saying, do your best. That child will die quickly, if not from the elements, from the animals. It's not going to happen. For the shepherd to say, hey, you're a sheep. I'm just going to turn you loose and let you figure it out for yourself, as if he's not given us any instruction, as if he's not given us any guidance. Has he not given us light? Is he not the light of the world? Are we not to follow that? It says here in the text that the shepherd does what? The shepherd goes before the sheep. That means he leads the sheep. He stands out in front. 
whether it's a sheep drive or a cattle drive, you have these situations where they're coming up behind. Maybe they're using sheep dogs for the cattle or for the actual sheep, and they're driving them from behind. The idea here is that Jesus stands out in front of the sheep. He leads the way. That's what the Scripture is telling us. It says in verse 4, When he was brought out all his own, when he had brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. He goes before them. A shepherd leads his sheep. How significant is this? We are so prone to wander. Ask yourself this question and don't answer out loud. Have you been frustrated within, with yourself spiritually, maybe within the last 24 hours, maybe 48 hours, maybe the last 30 minutes, maybe the last two minutes? Maybe there was a thought that you just had in your mind that you shouldn't have had and it was impure or it was uh, uh, you know, indicative of a distrust that you have with God or a frustration you have with God or maybe you're angry, maybe you come here in a foul mood. Have you, have you thought about what your, where your mind has been in the last 24 hours? And if you're honest with yourself, do you come to the conclusion that, my goodness, I wander all the time? That's why we have to have a shepherd that leads out in front, and that's what a good shepherd does. Isaiah 53, I said it before, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We are like sheep, and we're prone to wonder. Even though he leads us by still waters and green pastures, sometimes those aren't good enough for us. We have these green pastures, which is characteristic of the best possible scenario, the best place that we could be. The still waters, it's a safe place for us to disconnect from the dangers that may be around us, and we can get the nutrients that we need. We can be hydrated because the shepherd's got a watchful eye. He's taken us to a scenario and to a context that he can best protect us. But we still wander because sometimes the green pastures aren't green enough or sometimes the still waters aren't still enough. We're prone to wander. It's what we do. And I started to write out examples of ways that we wander, but I think you can think of, think of them for yourself. This is why we need the good shepherd, because a good shepherd leads us. But a good shepherd doesn't just lead us, doesn't just feed us, doesn't just know us, but a good shepherd protects his sheep. He protects his sheep. Go back to Psalm 23. Well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It says he leads me beside still waters. He leads me to green pastures. And then he says, I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff comfort me. It's interesting that a shepherd would carry this rod and the staff, and I haven't thought about that a whole lot before, but you have two very different instruments used for different things. You have a, a rod that is much like a caveman-type club, and that's what they would use to fight off animals, like David. David told Saul that he had killed a bear and a lion. What did he presumably use? He used a rod. And so he would beat off these animals. And in that case, with the, with the bear and the lion, he killed those animals. That's a crazy thing to me if I try to wrap my brain around it. But they would use this to fight off, to protect. But they would also use a crook. Now a shepherd's crook was a staff that had a hook on the end or a circle on the end. And what they would use for this, and this was for their protection, for their betterment, sheep are prone to be stubborn. Now, now the language gets really specific, right? We're prone to wander, but we're so prone towards stubbornness. And so the shepherd would come to the sheep and he would say, okay, you know, you're not going to go, you're not going to do what I say do. You're not going to follow the rest of them. You're not going to follow me. I'm going to impose my will on you. For who can resist his will? And I will ensure that you will go where I need you, where I want you to go. I will have you where is best for you. Sheep can be considerably stubborn, and that stubbornness can place them in danger. Therefore, the shepherd imposes his will to ensure the sheep's safety and that the sheep's best interests are met. What does this look like? What does this sound like to you? You and I are prone to wander, but also, like sheep, we are stubborn. We often have this dogged determination and refuse to change our minds or our courses of action regarding a thing because we're stubborn. We're stubborn. I will talk about my wife because she's not here today. <laughs> my wife's token phrase, and we joke about this all the time, when it comes to projects around the house, oh, just eyeball it. Just eyeball it, to which I respond. You gonna, you gonna eyeball morphine? Hmm? 
You can eyeball those meds you administer. You know, talk to the anesthesiologist. Just eyeball that propofol that you give me. It doesn't work that way, you know. But she says, oh, just eyeball it. We're remodeling our bathroom. Somehow when my mother-in-law came to town, what turned into a small little project became a whole remodel. So that's been my week. I'm not upset about it, but good gracious. So when we, plumb, when we, when we built the fence, Joey and Sarah are working on the, the back portion of our fence. And I'm looking back there, and Sarah's putting stuff up, but the level is nowhere to be found. What are you doing? You're supposed to use the level to plumb the pickets. And so now when you look back, and I have a slight issue with OCD from time to time, I look back in my yard, it's like, plumb, 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 wow. But why did you do that? I just eyeball it. You don't eyeball things like that. We have this frame, this metal frame that hangs over um, a swing. If you remember that you and I tested Josh one day at the missional community to make sure it would hold weight. We did. We did. We said, if Josh and I can sit on this, then anybody can. So, yes. So it was hanging over it, and I kept saying, let me measure it. Oh, we don't need to measure it. We just need to eyeball. I said, all right, I'll let you eyeball it. So you've got, you know, the, the, the metal rods that come down that the swing attaches to up here, and you've got this frame that's off center. That's what happens when my wife eyeballs stuff. And then we just are working on our bathroom. And I go in there, and I'm like, what did you do? She's painted the wall, and I see lumps here. I see streaks there, not painting streaks, but you understand when you have, like, blemishes on the wall, you got to address those before you paint over them. But she enters this eyeball mentality. Well, I just eyeball it. Joint compound? What's that? You don't need joint compound. Hole in the wall, cover it with paint. She's stubborn sometimes. Not to say I'm not. But in that case, she's being stubborn. And I told her that. I'm not afraid of her while she's at work, so whatever. <laughs> what about toxic relationships? Maybe not now, but maybe when you were younger, like myself. When I was younger, I know I was in a lot of toxic relationships. And I felt the Lord saying, you don't need to be in this. You don't need to be in this, in dating or whatever. You don't need to be in this. This is bad news. Nothing good is happening. Oh, but God, I'm, I'm, on, a, I'm, on, a, I'm on a missionary quest to change her. Or maybe she thought she was on a missionary's quest to change me. Just stubborn. I dig in my heels. Maybe it's bad habits. Maybe it's, maybe it's an antiquated methodological ministry approach. Maybe when contextualization says, hey, here's the world we're living in. This is how we need to reach people. This is what we need to do. No, 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 no. We've done it this way for a long time. What if your way doesn't work? What if the Bible doesn't mandate that you do it that way? But we keep the gospel right. We keep this right. The souls of men are, 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 are paramount. All these things. If we're doing that, we're going to have better chance here because we're contextualizing. This is Missions 101, by the way. If you're not contextualizing, you might be doing it wrong. What about those antiquated methodologies? Sometimes we need the shepherd to impose his will in order that our best interest and the best possible outcome is met. A good shepherd protects his sheep, but also a good shepherd disciplines his sheep. He disciplines his sheep. Now, there's no disciplinary action that takes place in this text, but I do want you to see Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews speaks with regard to Jesus. Hebrews chapter, or to sheep. Hebrews chapter 12, 3 through 6. Listen to these words. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here it is. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It's pretty obvious that the shepherd will discipline his sheep. That's what a good shepherd does. He disciplines his sheep. 
there's this image that maybe you've seen in churches or you've seen it online. It's, 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 it's very popular and has been for decades. And it's this image. Maybe you've been to Lifeway and you see a painting or a book and the images of Jesus and he's got this sheep that's wrapped around his neck that he's carrying. And I think it's a fantastic image. And most of you have probably heard this before. If not, this will be, be great and helpful for you in understanding this. This image that you may or may not have seen or that maybe you see in your mind's eye now is telling of the great love that the shepherd has for his sheep. Love enough that he would discipline his sheep. Because sheep are prone to wander, because sheep are stubborn, and because the, the, the shepherd often has to impose his will. God is always imposing his will. Don't confuse the issue. But in this scenario, God, he's having to impose his will. Shepherd would use their rods to break the leg of the sheep. If a sheep is wandering all the time, this sheep is just stubborn, the sheep will not get it together, we have to teach this sheep a lesson. Because the shepherd cares for the sheep, because the shepherd loves the sheep and has the sheep's best interest, the shepherd says, I'm going to have to do this because I love you, and he breaks the leg of the sheep. Obviously, the sheep is then, to a degree, incapacitated. The sheep is immobile. So what does the shepherd have to do? The shepherd has to carry the sheep around. And what happens during that process of the sheep healing from his wounds or her wounds is the sheep learns to rely on the shepherd because it has no other choice. And that's what happens when the shepherd imposes his will and the shepherd brings discipline to the life of a sheep. Now keep in mind, when the shepherd breaks the leg of a sheep, the sheep will try to get away. The sheep will still act out its stubbornness, but it will realize, I can't. I can't do anything. My leg is broken. Look, if you break your leg, I challenge you to a foot race. Let's see how good you do, right? You'll find out really fast, I can't do anything. These sheep were absolutely dependent, and during the healing process, they learned a valuable thing, that the shepherd is trustworthy, that he's reliable, and that he's good. The Lord disciplines us in the same way, and he disciplines us from the same heart, and that's the heart of love. That's the heart of goodness. And during this disciplinary process, what are we to learn? We're to learn that we can depend on the shepherd. That's what we're to learn. In our infirmity, in our brokenness, in our fear, whatever context that you're in that causes you to struggle or gives you great concern or grief, the Lord might be saying, wait, wait. The Lord might be saying, hey, I've taught you these things, now you apply them. But 100% what you're learning and applying is to lean on the Savior, to trust in the Good Shepherd. In your circle of friends, isn't it nice to have someone that you can always trust and depend on? I mean, it's, it's great. I'll, and many of you have been there for me in so many different situations. You know, Mark's over at Joey's working yesterday, so I call Mark and I pull him from Joey's to stop the work going on at Joey's. If Mark can look at this tile, you know, because I had to lay this tile for the first time in my life, and Mark does it. He comes over, and he looks at him, depend on him. But many times, you know, even though it's kind of devastating being Joey's neighbor, that I can call Joey, and many times he'll come over. Most of the time, if he's available, he'll come right over. He might he might grumble a little bit. I don't think the Bible says do everything without grumbling and complaining. But who's pointing fingers? He'll come over and he'll help me out, you know. And it's, and it's a great thing. And so many others, Josh, so many times have come over, you know, when I had an automotive issue because he knows automotives pretty well. And he'll come over and help me out. And that's been so great. So I, I get this, and, and so many others, I get this feeling that I can really de- depend on people. And it's a great feeling. It's a really, really great feeling. But on an infinite scale, When I am disciplined by the good shepherd, I am learning that on an infinite scale, I can absolutely depend on him. And his expertise far surpasses any of my friends or any of mine. The good shepherd disciplines his sheep, and we see that. And finally, the good shepherd sacrifices for his sheep. He sacrifices for his sheep. So if we go back to the text here, starting again, In verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And he says, this is why the Father loves me is because I lay down my life for the sheep. 
The good shepherd sacrifices for the sheep, which is kind of strange. Because you look at sheep and you see their numbers, the mass quantities, and you think it's just a sheep. Who cares if a sheep or 1,500 plummet over the side of a cliff in 2005 in Turkey? It's a sheep. We raise them so that we can either eat them or so that we can make clothes out of their wool. They're utilitarian by large degree. But what happens here is the good shepherd then is saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. And this is interesting because David... He didn't know that he was going to survive the lion attack. He didn't know he was going to survive the bear attack. David was willing to lay down his life for the sheep, which clearly points us to a greater thing. A good shepherd will do whatever is necessary for the sheep, even if it meant being put in harm's way. If it were me, I'd be like, it's lamb chops for dinner. Have at it. But I think theologically speaking, there's something very important here that we'll close with. And that's the scope of the shepherd's sacrifice. And this is important. And I bring this up because it's here in the text. Maybe not everybody will agree, and that's okay. If you want to have conversations, you can. But this is what I see in the text, which seems to be fairly clear. So there's a scope of the shepherd's sacrifice. There's a scope of the shepherd's atonement. The text provides a very specific recipient for the shepherd's sacrifice. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And one could hardly argue against the fact that in the scripture, sheep are always and only referred to as those who belong to the shepherd. Wolves do not belong to the shepherd. Goats, all the language that is used, do not belong to the shepherd. Those are threats. Those are outside of the flock. And Jesus says here that I lay down my life for the sheep. I think there's a very specific recipient for the shepherd's atonement. Who are the sheep? They are not all humanity, are they? They can't be. When we look at this text and he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, when it's clear that there are those outside, not those who other sheep he talks about, but those who aren't sheep at all, but those who are wolves. Are they not referred to in the text sometimes as ravenous wolves? Speaking of those who would seek to kill and destroy, seeking a, speaking of people who are not a part of the fold of God, the recipient is very clear. It's the sheep. They're not, it's not talking about all of humanity. That would mean all of humanity is a sheep. That would mean all of humanity is the flock of God. But that is in no way how the Bible ever, ever reads. Clearly, the sheep in context are those who have entered the door. Those who Christ has rescued. Those who Christ has redeemed. One might say Jesus laid down his life and all those who believed are now his sheep. I get that. That's fine to a degree, but listen to this, Isaiah 53.8, I want to relate this to this specific context, Isaiah 53.8, you have Jesus being sacrificed, and at the tail end of this explanation in, verse, in chapter 53, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, who is his? God. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of God's soul, God shall see and God will be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. So God steps back and he sees what Jesus does. He sees the work of Jesus. He sees the anguish of Jesus' soul as the shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. And he says, I'm satisfied. Why? Because God's wrath is appeased. Propitiation taking place. This is a great biblical thing. He says, I'm glad for that. I'm glad that justice is served so that redemption can be completed. And it says that Jesus, the righteous one, the servant of God, make many to be accounted righteousness. Now you might say, okay, many can represent everybody. The problem here is the next line, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus will bear whose iniquities? Those that he has accounted righteous. Do you understand that when he propitiates himself, when he applies his righteousness to your otherwise bankrupt account, that is why you have right standing before God. 
If you say that he's applying this to everyone, then at this point, everyone has right standing before God. And that, my friends, is called universalism. And that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, it's a heresy. Because it outright denies the very straight, plain, linear teaching of Jesus Christ. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So when he bears the wrath of God, when he bears their iniquities, the there represents the sheep, and only the sheep. Because those who are wolves or those who are goats or those who are like lions looking for someone to devour, Justice demands that they spend their eternity separate from God because they don't have righteousness, because they have not been counted righteous. And so what happens is God then dispenses his wrath on them because justice has to be served. If Jesus received the wrath of God, the payment for the sins of everybody in the world, I know this is, this is tough, if he received the payment for everybody in the world, it necessarily means that everybody is in right standing with God. And nobody owes a debt. So what do you do with the doctrine of hell? You rip it out of your Bible. You ignore it. You say it's obsolete. It's antiquated. It's a mistake. But that's not what the scripture teaches. For those who would contend that Jesus made all righteous, they would have to square their universalism with the teachings of scripture. Aren't you thankful that while you're defenseless and completely dependent that Jesus was the good shepherd or is the good shepherd? That he knows you intimately, that he's given you his word to nourish and sustain you, that he leads you, he protects you, he disciplines you, and ultimately he died for you. I hope this will propel you towards thanksgiving today. And that on this day, because we're not promised tomorrow, that you will spend it in thanksgiving for the work that the Good Shepherd has done for you and for me and for all of his sheep. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I just ask that you would help us see more fully the goodness of the Good Shepherd. I pray that we could process these truths. Lord, that they might cause us to go back to this text and read it and reread it. Lord, because I know I kind of pulled just a few things out of here and didn't do a walkthrough like we normally do. Lord, I pray that what was, what was drawn out, what was mined out from the text, Lord, is sustaining, is real, is right, is true, as, as best as I understand it, as best as I know. Lord, and we could start making proper application, Lord, that it would cause us to be so very thankful for, for the work of the Good Shepherd. Lord, that it would be written on our faces, Lord, that would be such, a, such, a, such an exciting thing, such a hopeful thing, such a grand thing, Lord, that we can't help but share with others the relationship dynamic that we are fortunate to have as defenseless, helpless, stubborn sheep. And that we have a good shepherd that always has our best interest in mind. Or may we glorify you in all of our efforts today with our attitudes, with our words, with our behavior in Jesus' name. Amen.